She made her Broadway debut in Big River and has gone on to appear in a range of major musicals, including Into the Woods, Passion, Ragtime, Kiss Me Kate, Man of La Mancha, and Spamalot. And she is now tackling the challenging role of Diana Goodman in Next to Normal. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and it's a great pleasure to meet and welcome Marin Maisie. Hello. Hi. So, next to normal. Yes. First question is, had you seen it before you were asked to do it? No, I had not. <laughs> it was one of the shows I was, you know, wanted to go see and we just didn't get around to it. Well, so, so often, you know, actors are working and they right, don't have exactly. time to see and depending That's on what the schedule is. Exactly the case. So what was the process for you? Did you go to see it or did you ask to read it? I went to see it before and then that was really – I didn't – after after Jason and I saw it, we – said we want to do this you know so your husband right. jason danieley right were you both approached together to do the show yes so we it were. was always the idea that you would come into it together yes yes so what's the conversation i mean it's one thing when you go and see a show <laughs> with your spouse <laughs> and you leave the theater and you observe the two block rule or the four block rule right. or whatever your preference is <laughs> What's the conversation when you see a show with an eye towards doing it? Well, I think for us, it, we have been looking for something to do on Broadway together. We met doing a show 14 years ago um, down in On Guard Arts, Annie Hamburger's company. Uh, Tina Landau directed this um, version of The Trojan Women. Well, I want to talk about yeah, that because it Chuck sounds Lee really did. interesting. It was very interesting. So we met doing a show and, of course, we do many, many concerts together and we had done a couple of shows uh, in Los Angeles, in Pasadena, we did 110 in the Shade together, played opposite each other, Lizzie and Starbuck, and then did Brigadoon at their reprise series out there, Tommy and Fiona. So, but we hadn't done anything, obviously, in New York together. So, um, this opportunity came up. We went and saw the show. We loved the show. We loved these roles. It was kind of a no-brainer. We like, we we have to do this. We really want to do this. Hmm. So. And it was a completely an offer. It wasn't that you had to audition. No, yeah. They, David Stone, I think, you know, came up with this idea. And uh, I don't know if I had been in his mind, you know, about it, about it when thinking about me at, at times. Uh, and then I think when they nailed down when, you know, the cast was going to shift, um, came to, to both of us with this great idea. And uh, it was very exciting. So when you got into rehearsing the show, since it sounds like it all happened smoothly and quickly. Yeah, and I mean, all. we had a little like Enron kind of was a little blip in the because right. that was that happened, mm-hmm. and um, then it wasn't for sure that I was going to be able to do next to normal, and then Enron ended up closing, and so that all worked out. Um, so, uh, so I mean, that there was it wasn't smooth as as that, but I but but it ended up happening. <laughs> but when you got into it, did you find? Anything about the material that was challenging in a way that you hadn't perceived from watching it? No, I mean, nothing that was ch- – I mean, just – you know, I did a, a lot of research about mental illness and bipolar disease and um, the challenge is, is just, you know, becoming Diana in the sense of trying to get into the mindset or the, the headset of someone who actually has this disorder and – 
unless you have it, there's no way you can really truly understand it. Um, that's the challenge is portraying that and representing that in hopefully a very truthful way and taking this woman on this journey um, that's quite extraordinary every night. And, um, you know, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's a beautifully written show. It's a beautifully written role. And I, I just couldn't wait to, to get to tackle it. And to do it with Jason is just the icing on the cake. How... How much time did you have to rehearse? We had three and a half weeks. But when you say three and a half weeks, you know, it's you you have four work days a week. So with the next to normal schedule, having Wednesdays being the day off, um, we would rehearse Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. Um, So it's not like, you know, you're it's not like when you're originating a show and you're in the rehearsal studio from 10 to 6. Um, But, you know, the show's already up. So once you learn the blocking, then we just worked with Michael Greif a lot, the director, and we would work, you know, during the day. And according to his schedule, we would sometimes work at night in a studio. So we we got a lot of time, you know, with him, which was, you know, invaluable. So, uh, but it's always, you know, in taking over, it's always the, the, the first night that you go on, it's still like being shot out of a cannon. <laughs> well, I saw you probably about three weeks into your uh-huh. doing it. And Michael was certainly there at the back of yes, the house yeah, checking yeah, it out. Yeah. But now that it's officially reopened, right. um, there's always the question of, is it continuing to grow? Are you- oh gosh, yeah. Every so- night is different. The, you know, the, the thing is with this, with with Diana and, and the journey that she goes through, it's endless. The where you can call from her life because you build a life. You know, I go, I think of her. I mean, there are certain references to her, her life in the play. But then I make the rest up. You know, with the relationship with Dan, with what's gone on. You know the the 16 years prior to the play beginning, um, within her having been diagnosed with bipolar, what she was like as a young person. You know, I mean, all of those things as an actor, when you have material this rich, you can keep, you know, just drawing from and changing. So the show changes every every time we do it. The show itself over its life has changed. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, as you say, you have to make up some of – you have to fill in around what's there. Did you ask about or go back to read or hear any of the earlier versions of the show? I know a little bit about – like I know that there was the Costco number at second stage and those sort of things. I didn't hear it. I didn't – you know, I didn't see it there. So I didn't hear any of that stuff. Um no, I didn't ask. It, it didn't seem that it was pertinent or it, it needed – that it was information that I needed. So um, – If I, it needed to be there, it would right. still be there. Yeah, it would still be there. Exactly. And Brian Yorkey, the lyricist book writer, um, and I'm sure Tom did this too, Tom Kitt, the composer, there's a timeline of the, sort of their lives and how it, it chronicles in the show and that sort of thing. So just date-wise how the show scans and those sort of things are sort of helpful too. Explain that to me in terms of it's sort of like the year when Diana and Dan met, when they had their first child, when she the year she was diagnosed bipolar. Because the play, how it is played now, takes place in two thousand nine, so it just goes back years. So you just you know sometimes when you think back on years, you think what was going on then in the world. Where was bipolar disease sixteen years ago? As far as medication, uh, how she was being treated, uh, you know things have come a long way as far as that goes in the last sixteen years. So um, those are just things that I find interesting as far as building 
myself up as well, the character. It is interesting. When, when you mentioned Timelot, I wondered because the show doesn't say – a month later, a week later, right. the next there evening. are little you know there are little snippets like um, it starts in September. I mean that's that's mentioned in the opening number. Jason makes a reference to it being September, um, and then in Psychopharmacologist that um, that number goes spans over seven weeks. Um, then we get you know so it does you know that the dance is going to be in March, so you know that's when the show ends. Um, you know that though there are mm-hmm. little things that are put in, so you see there's a time. A timeline has gone by. Then, when I get with uh, Doctor Doctor Madden, um, there is a timeline there. For, he makes a reference. Oh, it's been four weeks. You know, so uh, there are those. Those are those little things. Are so there, there are little yeah. cues that are very well put into the into the show. Hmm. Since you brought it up right away, <laughs> you and Jason had been looking for a show to do together because you'd done concert versions. You know, you, you we just do, we do a lot of symphonic women. concerts so, and all so of that sort here's, of thing. Here's my question, especially on a show like this. It's not a question of whether you take your characters home with you, <laughs> but do you go home every night and talk about it? We don't really. Um, I think that's one of the greatest things about doing it together is we've we've lived it together. So we've it's it's happened and it's been and so we don't have to go home and well maybe we were you know in other shows we'd come home and say oh Brian Stokes did this tonight or David Hyde Pierce did this tonight or you know and you'd sort of recap and you talk about the audience you talk about people you saw at the stage door or somebody that came to see the show we're there together so we don't have to talk about it unless we choose to unless right. we unless there's something that went on or there's something that you want to say you know could you move a little farther on stage or you know this little things like that <laughs> yeah that's uh, but we 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 tend not to i mean hmm. because of the nature of the show and the emotional uh you know the the emotion that one has to expound every night um we we tend to just kind of go home and and relax and watch some you know HGTV or something like that. <laughs> something very peaceful. <laughs> something very peaceful. <laughs> is this the most emotionally rigorous show you think you've done? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I did. I played Blanche in Streetcar last summer at Barrington Stage in Pittsfield, and that was uh, especially that was certainly very emotionally wrenching. Um, I would say this is on sort of that same level. In fact, I. You know, now I think of Blanche. Probably she, you know, she was bipolar, but they didn't have diagnosis back then. They didn't diagnose. I mean, bipolar. I, I'm probably going to have this wrong, but it wasn't really talked about as a bipolar disorder until oh, the early '80s or the early '90s. I can't remember. Anyway, long. It's it's you know. Well, you first called manic depression, right? Manic depression, and, and then and but then even that th- was a relatively right. new term in the exactly. '40s. You know. They didn't even ha- – I mean de- you were depressed or you were crazy, yeah. you know, and Blanche – but with what happened with Blanche, with her young husband killing himself, that that traumatic event that triggers her disease hmm. um, and that's – you know, that's where – that's then the show – you know, you see her – again. the show starts with Blanche at the sort of the end, like with Diana at a, at a real breaking point. Well, for those – who haven't seen the show, I don't want to give anything no. away, but do you think that in the case of Next to Normal, it was a triggering event that I th- brought this on? I think it was that. I definitely think it was that. And um, there's a, there's different schools of people who think if 
things had been handled differently, then maybe she wouldn't have had the disorder. I, I tend to disagree with that. I think she probably was predisposed to it, but that doesn't mean that it would have manifested itself in such a, a huge way. Um, you know, I think the relationship with Dan and how he handled the event that that occurred uh, made a lot of mistakes there. That certainly, you know, the combination of things uh, is what what causes her to to be at the state that she's in when we start the show. In my introduction, I mentioned a number of shows, but when we talk about shows like Into the Woods or Passion or Ragtime, certainly Kiss Me, classic like Kiss Me Kate. Um, is the is the vocal style of this show different than anything you've had to sing before? Yeah, because it's got you know there's a there's a lot of rock in this score, which is really fun. But it's a it's such a beautiful score, Tom Kitt. Ugh, it's an amazing score. And the great thing about it for me is I get to use sort of every part of my voice. I mean, I can belt and sort of do the the, the rock stuff, but then there's beautiful sort of legit not not legit not legit legit, but mixy on the the sort of legit end um and then there's a lot of mixy belty stuff there's pop kind of i miss the mountains which is kind of folky pop it's it's such a fun score to sing yeah but it's not singing classic show tunes no it is not definitely (laughs) so let us go back to the beginning you (laughs) grew up in rockford illinois yes i did i don't know how much theater there is in rockford surprisingly enough when i was a kid there was quite a lot of theater in rockford illinois um there was a small professional theater called New American Theater. Um, there was a community theater. There was a community outdoor theater, Starlight Theater, which is still there. Um, my There was the Coronado, which is a beautiful old venue there that uh, touring shows would come in there. My parents loved theater, took me to the theater, took me to concerts, loved music. Um, so I just... Uh, I, I was exposed at a young age. I started in a little theater group at the Y when I was eight. Um, I started taking voice lessons when I was 12. My high school, um, uh, this Boylan Central Catholic High School, did great shows. Um, I went to high school with Joe Mantello, with Bob Greenblatt, who's just the former president of Showtime, with Jody Benson, with uh, Dan Webster, who's an art director. They're, they're all in my high school. Wow. So, yeah, it was a lot of people sort of sprung from that little place. <laughs> the choice to take voice lessons that young, was that because your parents perceived talent because you yes. said, I want to make a career of this? Uh, my parents perceived talent because hmm. um, I sang always. And I showed a deep interest in singing and in wanting to do – wanting to perform. And uh, my mother – and, and father, there was a, a wonderful voice teacher. My she's no longer with us, Stella Rankin, and I I attribute a lot of my my vocal technique, my solid beginning to her, um, because I studied sort of classically, hmm. and which I think is not that we're going to get into a you know whole vocal thing, but I think that's the way that girls should learn to sing. I mean, to to have the classic training, because if you have that part of your voice, that's the core part of your voice. The belting, the other things are what kind of goes on top of it. And to to keep the the range and the voice healthy, you need to have that core in a really good place. Well, when you say classic, what do you mean? Do you I mean, mean I studied classical like, works? Yes, I studied operatic stuff. Huh. Yeah. Arias and that sort of thing. I, I was never um, an opera 
fan as a as a kid and opera I, I I like opera but it wasn't what I was drawn to but that's I would sing that and then sing my show tunes because I was always doing a show but I would sing my little aria and then you know we would work on my show songs but no oh, so you you got to 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 work on both with oh, the teacher yes, it definitely. wasn't a case of why am I learning this opera oh, stuff Oh no I don't no 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 we would work singer. on we would work on the arias and 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 get you know the breathing and 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 where where my voice range was, which of course has changed over the years, but um, but that that technique and uh, I still use that today, and I still do study today. Hmm. Um, I have a wonderful teacher, Arthur Levy, um, that both Jason and I study with, who um, is really of that same school that hmm. that Stella was. Why do you still study, given all of your success? <laughs> Because the voice is constantly changing and it's like a muscle, you know. I mean, it's it's part of your your instrument. You have to keep it. You have to keep it up. You have to keep it, um, you know, in a healthy, healthy place. And every show is different, so every show requires a different vocal use. And so I need um, I need help. I don't I don't go every week or anything. But usually, when I like with Next to Normal, when I started working on it. You know, I went to Arthur and we worked on the on the the songs and mm. worked on you know p- placing them in my voice, which shifted too once I started to actually play the role. Um, but uh, just you know, just so keeping in check. Interesting. So going back, um, you clearly were. You're doing all the high school shows. Right, yes. Um, you went to Western Michigan University. I went to Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo, Michigan. As a drama major? <laughs> I was. I first was a voice major. And my first semester, I realized I didn't want to just sing. And I you know, tried out for the, this, the musical and got the lead in it. And so I what was it? stopped the world. I want to get off. Um, and so uh, I, I switched to being a theater major with a music minor. <clears throat> And I read that you ended up – was it while you were still in school that you started working at the Barn Theater? Yes, it was while I was still in school. It was my junior year. I think between my junior and senior year or my sophomore and junior – no, my sophomore and junior year, yes. I started apprenticing at the Barn Theater in Augusta, Michigan. And, and was that classic summer stock? It was show classic summer – two, two, oh, two okay. weeks. Two-week stock. Classic two-week stock. Okay. Two weeks to put it up and two weeks – did it for two weeks and we're always rehearsed a show during the day. Um, and that's where I got my equity card. Yeah. And so <laughs> how many – it seemed like you did several summers there. I did as an apprentice. I was there 80, 81, got my equity card and then I was still in college. So I went back in 82. Then I moved to the city. Then I went back – I think 1985 I went back and did a Vita. I went back in 1990 and 1991. And then the last time I was there was 1996. Wow. Yeah. Well, I have a but lot now, of, of course, the later years you go back and you're there to play the lead in one show. Right. Not, exactly. The not, season. As no. an apprentice, it was the, as, you as were an in apprentice, the you did everything. everything. I mean, you, I, I played leads actually as an apprentice. I really? was, yeah, I was lucky. Uh, so, um, yeah, I played, I played, I did play quite a number of leads as an apprentice. So um, I actually got my first agent that way. Came, I was doing Carousel. I was playing Carrie and Carousel with Tom Wopat because Tom Wopat had been an apprentice at the barn years before and he was on the Dukes of Hazard then and came back as the big star playing Billy Bigelow and his agent came and I was still in college but gave me his card and said, when you move to New York, call me and I did. Wow. <laughs> and it wasn't just an idle, you know, hand No, it wasn't. Card. It wasn't. Yeah. So – 
you go from college to the Barn Theater right. to New York City. You got your first job two weeks after you got to the city? Two weeks after I, I mean, moved I, here. I, I always look I for just, those stories I of people waiting on tables for years. No, I yeah. started going to open calls right away. I started going, you know, got my backstage back then and um, and just started going over to the equity building and going to open calls. And there was an open call for Barnum, of all things. Um, I have no circus skills whatsoever. Um, but, you know, I, I went in as a singer. You know, they have the singers who move well and then the dancers who sing, whatever those. And you go in and you sing your 16 bars. And I sang The End of Glitter and Be Gay. And then I belted Keeping Out of Mischief. And so, I, you know, they liked my voice. And I had really long blonde hair down to my butt. Hmm. And um, I ended up in, in the chorus of the show at Elmsford Dinner Theater, which is now, uh, I think it still exists. It's called the Broadway Theater. It's in Elmsford. Westchester Broadway Westchester Theater. Broadway Theater, exactly. Um, but, you know, Swinging my ponytail and doing the splits and juggling scarves and that was crazy. <laughs> I got But there ask. were a lot. I mean, D. Hody played Jerry Barnum. Oh, Russ Tam. Um, Russ. Um. Oh God, I'm going to forget his name. Russ Thacker was Barnum. Gabe Gabriel. Uh, Gabe Barry was was in it. Um, there were a lot, a lot of you know young people in the business and uh, so. But I got to ask because I don't think I've ever talked to anybody about it. Dinner theater? Dinner theater. What was the experience? My one time doing dinner theater. <laughs> um, you know, it's kind of what everyone says. The, the, the plates are coming while you're, you know, while you're out there singing. And um, it was crazy, but it was fun. I was so young and I was so excited to have a job. And, you know, I don't know. It was just, it was a good experience. And so in terms of here in the city, I see that you did Where's Charlie at Where's Library Charlie at ELT? Was that your first yeah, show? Yeah, that was in the my city? first show in the city. Yes. Yes. And uh that that was gosh, that's going back a ways too. <laughs> I have years here, yes. but I'm not mentioning. Uh no, no, that's good. I know I mentioned some, I probably shouldn't have, but anyway. <laughs> but I mean, Equity Library Theater was in its day one of those places where you could go yeah. and See classic musicals right. here in the city, and it very much was a starting place. It was people. definitely a starting place, and it was also an off-Broadway credit, right. even though it didn't pay anything. <laughs> it literally paid nothing, I think, but it was an off-Broadway credit, and so and it was you know it was high profile. So, so then next up, national tour of Doonesbury. Oh gosh, the yeah. musical. Which yes. I didn't even remember had had a well, national tour. It didn't because it didn't live very long. We. I think we were we were supposed to be out for like nine months and we were out for like, I don't know, eight weeks or something like that. We died oh. in L.A. It was booked kind of not right. It should have we, – we should have played colleges. That's where the show would have done well. We didn't really need to go to L.A. I don't think it was the right spot for it. We started – we played D.C. Um, we started at West Point. We played D.C. You started at, at West yeah, we, Point? Yeah, we tried it. We did it – I think we teched in West Point and then we were in Washington and then we went to L.A. and we closed in L.A. <laughs> so the next couple of gigs I've read are somewhat related because you did Merrily We Roll right. Along out at La Jolla. Yes. And again, the original production of Merrily was 81. Right. It did not succeeded. But everybody has always said this show can be made to work. Yeah. I don't remember <laughs> where this was in the order of – the refashioning and the reworking of, of Merrily. In the sense of? 
just in terms of was this the first time this it was the first time yeah to, yeah because yeah. it was 85 and okay. um yeah that was my first you know that's when i first met james lapine and um i actually auditioned in la i was out in la i had stayed out in la after dunesbury and um i auditioned at the friars club for james and george firth uh, sang for them, and then I came back to New York, and we were having they were having auditions at the Booth Theater, at the theater where I'm doing Next to Normal, hmm. and that's the first time I ever sang, sang for Steve was on stage at the Booth Theater, um, it's because it's where Sunday was playing, Sunday in the Park with George was playing at the time, and uh, I sang Not a Day Goes By, which is the song I sang in in Merrill Labor Roll Along, hmm. um, and Steve and James were in the audience, and Steve came down and said that was very good, but you sang and there's hell to pay, it's so there's hell to pay. And what a lesson, you know, there you go, from the master. The, these, you know, the, these little words, and it's like every word is there for a reason. <laughs> but you had the opportunity, which people so rarely have, to actually audition in a theater. Yes, yeah. You know. Back then, I don't know today um, what goes on, but you do auditioned in a lot of theaters. I auditioned on stage at the the Gershwin, at the Minskoff, at the... Uh, which is now the Richard Rogers of the 46th Street, they would hold auditions on stage, yeah, hmm. which was really exciting. Yeah, because yeah. there are certainly – talk to older actors, certainly, of, of a couple of generations, and that was very standard. Yeah. That the auditions were always in yeah, the Yeah, you theater. always see in the movies, you know, that yeah. the, the people – yeah, you're always auditioning at the theater, right? But it's, it's great <laughs> to be able to do it because then you can really show them – yeah. What you can do yeah. in the hou- in yeah. house. It's nice to stand in a theater, certainly. The house. Yeah. So doing Merrily out at La Jolla, and you also did it at Arena Stage? I did it at Arena Stage, right. But that led to your first Broadway gig. Yes, Merrily led right to because Des McEnough was the artistic director out at La Jolla then, and um, A Big River, uh, which had started there, was had just when moved to Broadway and just won the Tony Award that summer, 1985. And, of course, Des obviously saw Merrily. And Patty Cohenauer was leaving. She played Mary Jane Wilkes. She was leaving to do um, Mystery of Edwin Drood. And they needed a replacement. And Des said, would you play Mary Jane? And I said, okay. And I had a sort of semi-audition in the side room at the uh, O'Neill Theater with Linda Twine, who was the music director, wonderful music director, and Ed Strong, one of the producers. And I sang, um, uh, You Ought to Be Here With Me. And Ed said, that's great. You got the job. (laughs) So it was not, you know, it wasn't like the big audition that you think you're going to have. And it was um, pretty pretty easy in a sense. So, But, you know, people that had seen my work, so that I guess – that that's it's very helpful when you're working and people can come see you and see what you do. Hmm. So you mentioned James Lapine and Stephen Sondheim. So Into the Woods, right? Was that a direct result? Did they just say we want to see? That I did girl, have to audition. Or? I went in because I was I I went in and I covered first. I covered Cinderella, The Witch, and Rapunzel, and so I think they wanted to see because I was young um, what I could do with the witch. And um, and so I, I went in. I sang Last Midnight, and um, and I got the job. And I went on in all three roles. So um, once I played them all in one week. So <laughs> wow. <laughs> yes. But were you there from the beginning of the no, rehearsal process? I, no, I was no. not. Unfortunately, I came in. Um, when did I come in? In like eighty, summer of eighty eight, I think. Hmm. So um, yeah, so Bernadette had left. Um, Joanna was just leaving. Um, so yeah, but a lot of the original cast was still there. Hmm. 
then and the world goes around. Then and the world goes around, yeah. So what's interesting is you'd worked really in a number of larger venues. You'd right. Unfortunate, whether it was La Jolla or you'd done Guys and Dolls at the right, Denver at Center Denver, right. and certainly these Broadway gigs, to go do a show in a space as intimate as West Side Arts yeah. um, or the West Side Theater, I think they called it then. Right. Um, was, was that an adjustment to take – a small, a smaller show in a smaller theater. Well, I, that's a that is definitely an example of a show that I saw before I was in it, and mm-hmm. even you know had the opportunity to be in it, and I loved it. I was a candor and ebb freak from when I was young. I loved you know Liza, and I knew all of their songs, and so I I just loved the show. So the opportunity to do it was so exciting to me. And it was one of those things I saw and went, oh, I can do that show. And <laughs> and so when that opportunity came up and went in an audition for Scott Ellis and Susan Stroman and and got the got the got the show, I loved performing in that little little space. And that show was so perfectly suited for that. But then we did take it on national tour and we did play it in bigger venues. And it worked it worked well in big houses too. Huh. People loved that show. It was so 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 brilliantly put you know, put together, and it was such a fun show to do. Did it have to be reworked? I mean, to go from the two hundred to three hundred seats. We didn't really, side. you know, we just I, you know, we expanded sort of just you know now you have to roller skate farther, and now you have to spread out a little bit when you're playing your banjo. But um, we didn't really change. It didn't really change much at all, as mm-hmm. I recall. So as we're talking about all of these shows, even the Broadway shows, you came into them. It would seem that Passion was Passion the first brand new musical yes. yeah. that you got to work on. Yes. So mm. what was the experience of being in a, in a show that was being newly created? That was really exciting. I mean, of course, that's what we live for as actors in, in the true sense of like creating roles and being part of the process. Um, they were doing a workshop at Lincoln Center. Steve had not written and James hadn't written very much of it. The opening was written, I know, um, I read, I'm, I'm not going to get my titles right because I haven't thought about it in a long time. Donna's big first, when she first comes down the stairs, that was written. Um, I can't remember all of hmm. Obviously, Steve would be able to tell you. But I auditioned for that, for the for the workshop. And um, obviously, you know, they knew me, but I, again, seeing me in a different light and um, auditioned for that and got it. And uh that was really exciting to do at Lincoln Center in a very tiny, you know, we did it in just the black box at Lincoln Center. Well, once upon a time, and I don't know <laughs> where it was in, at that workshop point, it was actually meant to be one act it, of a two-act right. evening. Right. The other, the other act was going to be based on a book called Muscle. Right, Muscle. And it was going to be Bill, Bill Finn. Finn. Right, which he and James did end up writing and they, they, they had done it. I think that I think that, that idea – was there for a while, but but once we started working on passion and they saw what it was, I think that they abandoned that idea. I mean, I, they would tell you certainly when it was in their minds. I don't remember, but right. that was never when the workshop began. It was always just that. Got it. Yeah. So, your first opportunity for a role that's never been played before. Right. You've got the writer, who's also the director. You've yeah. got. The composer, lyricist, they're in the room. Did you have input? Oh, yeah. And there were things being – I mean it was a very collaborative effort and there were things – because like I said, there 
the whole show wasn't written, so then things were being written for us, you know, and around our voices and around, you know, sort of where we were taking taking the characters and that sort of thing. Um, so yes, definitely, we had we had input, and you know, Steve would bring things in, and it would just be so exciting to have something new and we'd play it for you, and then you'd learn it. And it was, it's, I mean, you know, to have Steve Sondheim write something for you is, uh, I think, you know, part of the biggest thrill of my life <laughs> but you, i would think it would be a thrill for anybody's yeah, life yeah um but clearly you were still new enough that it's not like you could turn to him and say you know i'm not sure that works no but we would know like for for instance the uh, clara's ending how she left giorgio um that was something that we all tried to figure out, you know, that James would write different things and Steve would put it to music and I would sing something. There, were, This was now during previews and when we were in the theater. But um, trying to figure out how to end, how for her to leave, to leave Giorgio. Hmm. And we would talk about that and I would have, I would have input in, in to those sort of, in that hmm. sort of thing. Um, but I think... You know, no, not necessarily at that point was I saying, oh, I think you need to write me this or that. Right. But I do remember we say, I was saying, you know, we need there, – there needs to be a musical moment here. There needs to be something here and, you know, that's what's so great. I mean Steve would write things and we'd put it in and we'd take it out and um, that that was an amazing process because we really used – I mean – after the workshop when we were previewing, the preview period, the show changed drastically. I, I was trying to recall that I yeah. heard that it was a show that really did change it from did. night to night. So it did. It truly did. I mean, that was really the using of the previews in a in a major, major way. I mean, he was writing things, he and James were writing, you know, different things and every night and things were going in and they'd maybe stay in a day or two and then they'd go out. And um, that was exciting because you were really you know, you had to be we were all just part of this this thing and trying to make it work and and everybody working as such a you know uh, uh, a unit to 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 tell this story as best we could. Given that again, if the stories that I heard are true, it was really changing right up until mm-hmm. it was. We it, actually postponed our opening. Um, I, I remember that we ended up postponing it a couple weeks. So there were any, were there any changes after it opened? No. Mm-mm. So once it was done, once it, it was, was done, done, it was done. Yes. And did you do the entire run of the show? I did. We all so. did. Yeah, because it was nine. It was nine months, I think. And mm. I never missed a show. Wow. Yeah. So, <laughs> what? I'm always curious. And I never know about actors' interaction with audience. But what was your sense of the audience responding to that piece? Because it's a difficult piece. It is a difficult piece, and people responded to it in different ways. I mean, some people loved it. Some people did not like it. Um, and they still to this day. It's oh so interesting. I saw your passion. I loved that show so much. Or oh my god, I didn't. I hated that show. I mean, <laughs> people it's, will tell you. That? Oh yeah. Oh, people tell you so many things <laughs> <laughs> that you, you know. A lot of times they tell you things you don't want to hear. But um, no, I mean, what I loved about the audience reaction is that people were coming to the theater and they were thinking about it. They were feeling. People would get angry, or they would be, or they would be weeping, or but it made them feel something. It wasn't just something they went and sat and watched and went, oh, let's go get a piece of cheesecake across the street afterwards. You know, I mean, it, that's what was so great about it. And it, and that t- t- still to this day that people are emotional about that show. Hmm. Uh, that was so exciting to be a part of. So after you'd done Passion, the next big musical, not so long afterwards and certainly very big, was Ragtime. Right. Now, you did it initially <laughs> up in Toronto. In Toronto, yeah. So – 
again, how much was that a show that was changing and growing as you were doing it? First in Toronto, even before right? The because idea of we to first did the workshop in Toronto. Mm-hmm. That was a six-week workshop. Then we recorded the first album. Right, that's the what's songs so remarkable. from Ragtime. Yeah. yeah, we recorded that before we'd even done the production up there, and then we did the show. So. Things changed, you know, again, things were changing. Um, I'm trying to think. Mother stuff was, it was, it, it didn't change that much. Um, sequences changed, he wanted to say. I'm just trying to, like, remember that definitely the Evelyn Nesbitt and Harry Houdini things, there had been a song and that went out and they put a song in. That changed. Um, you know, he wanted to say was written, I think, ooh, I can't remember if it was written for the workshop. But it was written. By, I think it was written by the time we ended the workshop. Um, I mean, I didn't mean he wanted to say it. I meant make them hear you. Um, you know. So yeah, it was you know the changing, and that was an amazing piece to be a part of. Also, what a creative team that was, and acting you know team too. Obviously, you wouldn't have known it at the time, but looking back, do you think the audience responded differently in Toronto? than they did in America because it is such an American set story. Yeah, the um, I think the Toronto audience they they loved it, but they're quieter, sort of like the Brits are quieter. Oh. <laughs> hmm. Um so yeah, I mean, we're coming to America, it, it definitely resonated obviously with with people. But I think, you know, people in Toronto certainly could relate to it and and indeed did did really love it. Mhm. Well, I mean, it's it's such a sprawling story. I think it's it a, is. It, I mean, there's it's something in epic. it for everyone. There is, and yes, definitely. So, now, in between Toronto and New York is when you did this on guard arts show that right. you mentioned. Yes, so in early between, on. actually, in between the workshop in Toronto and going back to Toronto ah. to do to be there for a year because we were in Toronto for a year trying the piece out. Wow. Yes. Um, is when I did The Trojan Women, A Love Story, and Met My Husband. Now, what I'm curious about, um, for those who don't know On Guard Arts, On Guard Arts was a company run by Annie Hamburger, which was site-specific theater. It was all about finding a place and creating a show that fit that place. Right. But as I read about this production, so it was written by Chuck Mead. Right. It was directed by Tina Landau, but it – had songs by George Gershwin, Harold <laughs> Arlen, and used recordings by Billie Holiday and Pink Floyd. Pink Floyd, so I think I've Patty. I mean, yeah, we had every, and we would sing. I mean, I sang "I Want Candy" as um, as <laughs> Helen of Troy. That was my entrance. You know, that was my my uh, my uh, my opening song. And Stephen Skybell and I did a big dance number to. Um, uh, before the fiddlers have fled, before they asked us to pay, da 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 da. da. Let's face the mu- let's face the music and dance. Um, yeah, so I sang a song, a Tuck and Patty song, "Let's Bring Heaven Down Here to Jason," you know, in as as Dido. So, yes, the, it, you know, conceptually, it was it was a hi- high concept. Tina and Chuck, you know, put this together, and it was such a that was such a fun thing to be a part of in this crazy space, the East River Park Amphitheater, which. You know, had I'm not even sure if it's still there, but way down in the East River Park, um, it had been apparently, I think the 
first place that they had done Shakespeare in the Park in like 54. Like they huh. used it one year. I remember that from when we were there. Then it had sort of been used in the 70s. Fire had happened there. It was yeah, abandoned. It was there were ho- homeless people living there. Yeah, it was very decrepit. So the backstage area, which had had a fire and was full of graffiti, they bulldozed sort of the just the rubble. And that's where we put – but it had still sort of a backstage area, like a cement platform and just – and that's where we put the audience, the seats, and that's where we did the Trojan women. Huh. And then when Aeneas like broke through into Carth- Carthage at the end, this sort of wall opened up. And then the audience actually had to move for the second act around to the amphitheater part, which was like an old shell amphitheater. And they had painted it white, and the stage was very big. We built a T-ramp. And put a hot tub in the middle of the tea ramp because um, I drowned – as Dido, I drowned Aeneas in the hot tub <laughs> at the end of the show. <laughs> it was a great way to, I, to start my relationship I hear with revival. I hear revival. <laughs> it was so cool. People that saw it were like, this is like nothing we've ever seen. And they really had to – it was it was a trek to get there because there's no subway. The subway, you'd go to the subway and then you'd take like three subways and you'd take a bus and you'd walk across a bridge and, you know, so um, – but it was it was really fun. It raises a question. Now, we mentioned that this production actually used a lot of music. So right. the idea that somebody said, oh, we're doing the Trojan Women, let's get Marin Maisie for that, is not so absurd right. as it would seem on the face of it. But you've mentioned already in the interview, you've mentioned doing Streetcar right. um, last year. You spoke briefly about doing Enron. As I look through this – list of all of the work you've done, those are the plays, even right. one of them which had so much music in it. Do you get the opportunity to do plays? Do you Not as much plays? as I want to. That's why I wanted to do Enron because, I mean, even though there was music in it, I didn't sing in it. It right. wasn't a musical. There was music elements, musical elements in it, but it was not a musical. Well, by sheer coincidence yesterday, I was, I was um, chatting with Julia Murney and huh. we were talking about the fact she was saying, you know, we all are actors. Right, exactly. We just get known for singing. Yes. So is there is – there I mean that's the thing. When people effort? say I'm an, I'm an actor, I just happen to be able to sing, you know. So that, because, you know, just because you sing, I mean you have to be able to act to – to put a song across, you know. I mean, you approach everything from an acting standpoint, from a character standpoint, from what the beat in the scene is and all those sort of things. It's all approached from acting standpoint. So how did Streetcar come about? Since Streetcar came about, Julie Boyd, the artistic director, called up my agent and said, would Marin like to play Blanche in Streetcar? And I was like, yes, I want to play Blanche in Streetcar. I really, that's not a role I had put on my radar. Hmm. Um, I, I... I had seen a production of it here, one of the many, um, many years ago. I had seen the movie. I guess I just didn't think of myself as a Blanche. But then I read it and I was like, oh, my God, of course I can play this role. And I I think I probably approached her in a little different way as I'm not, you know, I'm a strong person. I'm not, not when you look at me, you go, oh, she's, you know, a butterfly or she's so fragile or that sort of thing. And I think that was the interesting take on it um, from our point of view. And that was a wonderful experience. Christopher Invar was my Stanley and uh, Kevin Carroll and Mitch and Kim Stauffer, Stella. And we had such a great – we well, really, Chris Invar, also a musical. Uh, yes. Often but, thought of as a musical actor. Right, but a wonderful, wonderful yeah. actor and has done a lot of – has been working up there a lot and done a lot of Shakespeare around down in D.C. And uh-huh. he's really been doing a, a lot of acting, um, straight acting. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was – but I mean – 
Tennessee Williams is so musical. I mean, those those monologues are like arias. You know, the the writing is so beautiful. Um, so I think actually being a musician is helpful in hmm. in terms of knowing how to pace and you know do these do the monologues and that sort of thing. Hmm. And <laughs> since we've taken the dramatic moment, Enron, you said you were excited to do Enron. Yeah. Again, was that something? You had to pursue? I, I mean, I was called to audition for it. I mean, I read the play. I was mm-hmm. presented with the play to read. Do you want to audition for this? Yes. And I had two auditions with Rupert Gould, the director. And, uh, yeah. That's another show that I heard went through a lot of rewriting, even though it had been done in England, that there was still a lot of changes yeah, being done Yeah, we changed. Here. I mean, because there were, I mean, there were some references. There were certain isms that were sort of British isms that we changed. Um, Lucy just, you know, I, she, she's such an amazing playwright and just kept working on the piece um, and then was inspired by the cast here to do sort of different, you know, some different things and changes in scenes. And I mean, the, the, the basic structure of the, of the play didn't change and certain huge elements didn't change. But, you know, l- little reworkings of dialogues and things in monologues and that sort of thing they did. Yeah. So so but but. It was instead of simply being a transfer, it was a case of it was still. A they new were play. really like redoing it. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely a new a new play. Yeah. Interesting. Well, after this short break that we've had for for uh, dramas, let's uh, let's go back to musicals <laughs> and come back to Kiss Me, Kate. Right. Um, obviously, a great classic musical. Yes. Um, what was what was the experience of getting to play that part? That. Which, was gives you such range. so much fun. I tell you, that experience was just, you know, the the again. I've been so blessed to work with amazing people, casts, directors, choreographers. I really have designers. You know, I mean, I I've had it, it, I just and when I think back, this is you know, this is sort of like just thinking back on all these these times and the people, and I've been really lucky to have have such great. Um, people that I've, I've worked with and Kiss Me Kate being one of them. I mean, from Michael Blakemore, an absolutely brilliant director and, you know, what he, how he and Kathleen Marshall, who choreographed it, re-envisioned this, this piece and John Guare, you know, ghost, was a little ghost writer on this, kind of doctored up the second act and, and some stuff in the first act and uh, it was so much fun to do and of course Brian Stokes, Mitchell and playing opposite him and doing this, being able to create this, recreate these these uh, larger than life characters was just a complete joy. Well, how would you say, because I don't know the original show well enough, I mean what's in my mind is, is having seen that production, mm-hmm. how much did get tweaked? Uh, from this moment on being added to the show from this moment on was not from because mm-hmm. is from out of this world which actually I did it on course <laughs> um, but uh, the sort of the element of what goes on with the general with Lillian and the general that the in the original was a you, you kind of went well it, pro- it played in 49 but it's not going to play in 99 and 2000 it sort of was a, a little kind of like oh do you really believe that so you know so John kind of Came in and, and we made more of the relationship with the general, added a song there and so that there was a little more conflict between Lily and Fred and, and her really, really going to leave him, that sort of thing. Um, in the first act, I don't, think, I don't think a lot changed in the first act to my recollection. What's interesting about Kiss Me Kate is that um, 
although it's a classic show, I can't even remember what the prior revival was to that production. There wasn't. We were the first revival. I think like City Opera had maybe done it. Mm -hmm. I don't know when. But I think that was very much based on the original. I mean, this was a complete, obviously, new orchestrations. I mean, Don Sebesky and and David Chase doing arrangements. Completely, the whole opening number was re-visualized. You know, another Mm -hmm. opening number show. Another show which became an introduction to all the characters. It, 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 how that show opened, it wasn't just an overture playing. It was part of the show and how you met everyone. You know, that alone, um, was, was completely different from, Mm -hmm. from the original. So there were, there were many elements, you know, in that sense, musical elements, keys changing, the, you know, those sort of things that were very different. So it was doing a classic <laughs> musical, but, but new and without, in some cases, the baggage. I mean, even the movie, there is a movie of it, right. but it's not, I don't think it's in the pantheon of great movie musicals mm-hmm. that, you know, people see every year. No. So in, in, in <laughs> a way, so. you got to reintroduce it. Yeah. So what was the experience of going to London with it? Oh, well, the London experience was was great, but it was interesting. Our second day of rehearsal was 9-11. So um, it was difficult um, to be over there then, although the Londoners were – they couldn't have been more embracing, more loving, more – I mean to be somewhere that has experienced terrorism already – and they really understood, I mean, you know, in that sense and they were so – Empathetic, sympathetic, um, our fellow. I mean, there were just the, the four of us: Brent Barrett and um, Michael Barres and Nancy Anderson were the four Americans. Um, and then everyone else was British. And so sort of Kathleen was Marshall was over there with us too, of course, and Paul Gemignani, but um, and Marty Pacladinas, our costume designer. I mean, we were all there. Um, our, Roger Berlin, our producer, was there when when this all happened because it was literally our second day of rehearsal. Mm-hmm. So. Um, but then what – doing the show there, they loved it. The Brits absolutely loved it. And I rem- and someone wrote an article comparing – if I'm going to remember this correctly – comparing when Oklahoma had come over after the Blitz and mm. how the Americans had brought this life to England. And they were comparing it even though they had not been attacked. We had been attacked. But here we were again – Bringing this, you know, life to to their city, and it was really touching. Um, and I think that they embraced the show, and that, and you know, that was all part of it. Hmm. What was the experience of working since the leads were the Americans, right? Of then having the rest of the company be English. What was the meshing of styles? Because although. There are certainly musicals done and, and there's more of a musical tradition now in England. Right. The musical comedy tradition is not that old. Over there. No. And that's why, you know, you had Kathleen Marshall and you know, Michael Blakemore, although he's uh, a Brit, um, Australian actually originally. Yeah. Um, his sensibility is so brilliant and his comic timing and his musical theater comedies musical comedy sensibility is so brilliant so it was i think what was great for all of them is to be able to really get to do a true american musical comedy in the musical in our sort of style you know um and everybody really loved it they 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 it made them – I think it made them all really want to work harder. 
Hmm. Um, we work really hard over here, and they work they work hard. But I think there's a a, a bit of an uh, you know Kathleen like really instilled this this sense for for the dancers to of that they really had to step up to the plate, and they did, and it was it was exciting. Well, and again, the material is classic material even yes. if rethought as much as as you spoke of and the british musicals the musicals that have originated there are in a totally different style right so i mean yes you have things over there like the lost musicals which are concerts but right. you don't you know the degree to which they are reviving classic american musicals Doesn't is happen. not as frequent right so until we got now, we do get stuff at the Chocolate Factory right. and the Don right. Mark. Right, but in, on a big, you know, on a big, huge scale, like we did it. No, so yeah. I think you know that. Yeah, because even was, then, they, they scale it down. Right. To do to they're you know, small. harder to do it. Yeah, so. exactly, exactly. Um, and also, I just have to mention, it was fun to be in London. Jason came over and did the Full Monty at the same time. Oh, so that was really one of the reasons. We went because both of our shows were going over there and bringing Americans over, and so he came over a little later. He was actually still here doing the full Monty um, during during nine eleven. Um, they came over later, um, but that was a really a great experience too to to be in London together and working on the West End together. Hmm. You also <laughs> got to work in London. You went over and did Spam a lot. I now, did you've done Spam a lot here. I did. I did. And and then you went over. I there. just went for a month. It was kind of this kooky little. It was I a was leaving. Exchange. It was a little. It wasn't. <laughs> I mean, it was. I think to get Hannah over here. But I was leaving, and they were going to bring Hannah Waddingham over, and they were also doing this crazy reality TV show over there to bring in a Swedish. Uh, woman to play the Lady of the Lake. I had nothing to do with any of it. I went over there. I, what was great for me is I got to go. I hadn't been over there since we'd left in 2002. So I got to go over, do the show, which was great fun to do. Actually, to do Spam a lot in England was really fun because we certainly get it here, Monty Python, but it's it's their culture. I mean, it is their, you know, I talk about the, the British audiences being a little more reserved and quieter because they certainly were for Kiss Me Kate, although they would stand up and they would love it. I mean, Spamalot, it's like they would react to things that they never reacted to here, you know, so because it's just, it's their people. Well, I grew you know? up, I mean, for me, well, Spamalot, I mean, there are those, <laughs> you know, Spamalot had very interesting reactions from an audience because you could tell. Who were the Monty Python yes. fans? Because they'd applaud the beginning of right. the scene, right? As opposed to people who then just laughed right. because they because seen it was something funny. funny, right? So in England, they just knew everything, <laughs> right? Know, they Except, all... but it's not all exactly as no, no. I mean, you've Monty got Monty Python and you, the Holy you, Grail, and no, I you mean, know, you have the, the couple acts, you have yeah. the, the the big. Um, you know, the Jew number in the second act, which is interesting playing in England because, well, you know, it's, it's, it was fun. It was completely fun. It was fun to go over there, like I said, for a month and I got to see a lot of pals and chums and go to some favorite restaurants that I hadn't been to and it was great. What is the experience for you of going into a show? You have replaced yeah. a few times yeah. and, and uh, La Mancha, which I mentioned, you know, even now with, with Next to Normal. Some actors don't want to do that. Right. I think for me, you know, picking the roles, you know, I have been offered to do other things. I have certainly turned down doing that. Um, I have said no to replacing. Uh, it has to be something that I really want to do. And also with the understanding that I'm going to come in and do it. My, You know, it's, Mar- it's going to be Marin doing it. It's not going to be walking in and working with the director and all of that sort of thing. So um, that's sort of how it's how it's 
you know, it, it has to be a melding of those those elements mm-hmm. in order to get me to want to do it. So I asked early on about whether you and Jason go home and, and talk about the show and you <laughs> right. said no. But it's taken this long outside of your joint concert appearances for David Stone to have the bright idea and say, hey, they're right. married. Yes. Why don't they play a married couple in I the know. show? Um, if I were a Broadway producer – what would you pitch me for you and Jason to do together next? I don't know. I mean, we always say we'd love somebody to write something for us, you know, mm-hmm. something new, something that we could work on from the ground up. So um, although in a few years we'd like to do Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> yeah. And again, the unexpected answer because it's not a musical. No, but I mean, you know – I that's it's so funny. People just think just because you do musicals that that's all you want to do. I don't. I mean, I I love singing. It's it's so amazing to be able to use your instrument as part of the you know the the elements of acting. But I'm an actor, so I want to do things that are interesting. That I want you know that are that that speak to me. So that's that's what you pursue. You know, you don't necessarily pursue something just because you're going to be able to sing or not. You know. Well. Your pursuits have been extraordinary, <laughs> and I wish you well in more of them now and hopefully for a good long while, uh, next to normal, and whatever comes next. Thank you. Marion Maisie, thank you for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thank you. Great to be here. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry, and our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing and also be sure to check out our YouTube channel. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, please remember that we are a not-for-profit organization and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center and the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.